The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would please, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. I am happy that we do have the opportunity to be here today. Uh, This is a great time of the year as we look forward to Friday and the celebration of the birth of our Lord. And Jesus' birth is recorded here in uh, the end of Matthew chapter 1 and also in chapter 2, which is a shortened version of Luke chapters 1 and 2. But Matthew includes some information that's not given in Luke or in any other place of the Scripture. Uh, In the second chapter, Matthew speaks of the story of the visit of the wise men who saw that blazing star and that led them to find the Christ child in Bethlehem. Uh, My subject this morning is not those magi, but I do want to uh, consider the question that they asked in the second verse of the second chapter. So let's begin reading in Matthew 1 and verse number 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost." And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord, by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, And took unto him his wife, and knew her not, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. I usually start thinking about Christmas messages early in the year. After this one is finished, I'll start to go into searching mode at the beginning of next year, already thinking about what I'll do for the next Christmas message. And this year, I arrived at the subject that I want to talk to you about almost by accident. And I wouldn't say completely by accident, because I do believe that the Holy Spirit superintends these things. But it seemed that I sort of backed into this uh, particular a sermon because we're in the middle of a series on Satan. And I wondered, how is it possible to make a Christmas message out of a series where we're talking about Satan? Well, it was then that the Lord opened up a way for me to do that. And uh, we looked at the, as we looked at the uh, events that uh, bring about Satan's destruction in Revelation chapter 20, I saw there an opportunity for us to talk about the king who's going to come in his kingdom when Satan is put away, when he's locked away for a thousand years. And this is where Matthew chapter 2 comes into play. 
when the wise men came to inquire about where Jesus was born, they weren't looking for uh, an ordinary baby. Uh, they were looking for a child that would become a king, but then not an ordinary king. If they wanted a king like others, they would have been perhaps happy with some other choices. Maybe Herod would have been a choice for them. In fact, Herod was very insistent that he should be the only choice. But we notice in this text that they looked for a king that was very much different because this was a king that deserved to be worshipped. He was the king of the Jews, but the key to his extraordinary nature is that word worship because Jewish kings were not to be worshipped. God was very strict about that, that no one is to be worshipped but the Lord God. And so these wise men were not looking for a king that would rule one nation on earth, and neither were they looking for a king that would rule only on the earth, but they were looking for a king who is God. And so in just a few verses into the Gospel of Matthew, we already find the declaration that Jesus is God. He's the one that, or the king that everyone must worship. And the Bible says this in so many ways that we can't miss it. The Bible declares Jesus is God. And as we come to the season of Christmas, the world turns its attention to that fact that Jesus is God. Now the fact that Christmas is a global celebration tells us that there is no one who is like him. There is no one who commands the world's attention like Jesus does. When President Obama switched on the lights of the national Christmas tree, he gave testimony that Jesus is God. And I don't think that he meant to because he's never shown any recognition of the absolute authority of Jesus Christ as God. But when the lights went on in the national Christmas tree, he gave testimony that Jesus is God. And the tree itself, though, that's no testimony at all. And neither are these trees that we have here in our auditorium. That's not the testimony that Jesus is God. But by the fact that we have those, that there is a recognition of Christmas, that Christ was born, the world is saying we understand that there is something very, very different about him that he is the one who is to be worshipped as God. Otherwise, no one would turn their attention or even think about a pretty tree that's in Washington, D.C. There never has been a ruler whose birth has been celebrated by such a wide diversity of nations, of people. As Americans, we care very, very little to recognize the, the birthdays of great political leaders of other countries. Without looking it up, I can't tell you when Julius Caesar was born. I can't tell you when uh, Charlemagne was born, and I certainly don't put up a tree when I think about the birth of Napoleon. I don't worship them, but I do worship Jesus Christ. And likewise, there is no foreigner who cares to think about the birth of our leaders. They don't really care when George Washington was born or Abraham Lincoln was born. The point here is that there is no person, uh, no one that cuts across all national, ethnic, and and uh, racial divides like this person, like Jesus Christ does. And why does he? Because he's so different. He's so different from everyone else. He is a king, he is God, and he's recognized, he should be recognized as God. He is the king who is to be worshipped. And so when that tree was turned on, President Obama made a declaration that he personally refuses to stand on, that there is no other God but Jesus Christ, and he stands to the exclusion of all others, who are to be worshipped. Now the wise men came to Jerusalem and it had been revealed to them the long-awaited promise that God said that there is a king that is coming, a Messiah is coming. 
And as far back as the Garden of Eden, God promised that He would come. And when those wise men saw that blazing star, then they knew that God had given them a sign that this king had been born. Oh, they didn't go to Jerusalem to speak to Herod. Herod was incidental to what they were doing. They came to worship God, the one who is the king of an everlasting kingdom. Now that leads us then to the discussion of our topic today. Christ came to be a king, and so I want to talk about his kingdom. And I'm not going to talk about the manger or the announcement of angels. Those are good things to talk about, and we've talked about those in many Christmas messages. But today I'd like to fast forward from the manger and to talk about Christ in his future kingdom. And there are two important scriptures that we want to observe today. The first one would be that one in Matthew 2, verse number 2, when the wise men came and they said, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? We want to worship him. A king implies a kingdom, doesn't it? And so they recognized that Jesus was a king who would have a kingdom. A king rules in a kingdom. And then the second reference in Scripture is the one that we've talked about concerning the devil. The kingdom is coming, and in order for that kingdom to come and to proceed in all of its splendor and all of its holiness and its righteousness, in order for that to happen, something has to be done about the devil. Satan is the god of this world. He has assumed a position that he has no right to. This world belongs to God, and God permits no rivals to his throne. Now, in the Christmas story, Herod wanted to know where Jesus was. He told the wise men, when you find him, you let me know because I want to worship him too. But of course, Herod had no designs on worshiping Jesus. He wanted to kill him. And that's because Herod was the vassal of Satan. Now, I want you to notice the scriptures in Revelation chapter 12. I think we'll have it on the screen for you. This is talking about the devil. We've read it before in our study. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Now that woman in the passage stands for Israel. Israel is the, is the nation that gave birth to the Messiah. And as soon as he was born, Satan wanted to destroy him. And we see that happening in the Christmas story. Herod uh, tried to kill Jesus, and that was the work of Satan to do it. Now, Satan is the one who wants to rule the world, but God's not going to permit him as a rival. And so God cannot allow Satan in his kingdom because he is a rival. At least Satan thinks that he's a rival. There are no real rivals of God because that's an unequal thing. But the devil thinks that he is a rival. He is a rival to God. He's an adversary. He uh, is a thorn in the plans and purposes of God. He's a thorn to righteousness, and that thorn has to be pulled out. And that's what God is going to do. He's going to take care of the devil when his kingdom comes. Now, we can be sure of that. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14 says, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters that cover the sea. And so the glory of God is going to envelop the earth. And for that to happen, evil has to be shut out. And so Christ will come to rule with a rod of iron. And he has a plan for Satan which we find out in Revelation chapter 20. 
Now, if you'll turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 20, we can see how that God is going to control Satan for the entire length of his millennial kingdom. And this is the first phase of Satan's destruction. Revelation chapter 20 and beginning in verse number 1. Revelation 20, verse number 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given unto them And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now there we see that God is going to lock down Satan in the abyss for 1,000 years. That is the duration of the earthly kingdom. Now the kingdom of Christ is actually an everlasting kingdom. So what we're talking about here is the portion of that kingdom that's on this literal physical earth that we have right now. This earth is going to be destroyed, and then Christ will rule in that everlasting kingdom. It will continue in the new heavens and in the new earth. But this phase of it is 1,000 years, and during that 1,000 years, Satan is locked in the abyss. But what I'd like to do is to shift our thoughts away from Satan. We have lots of time to talk about him, but I'm sure that what you'd rather think about on Christmas is Christ. And so let's talk about him for a while And let's talk about this kingdom that he intends to bring upon this earth. This is the king that the wise men so anxiously anticipated and the kingdom that they were looking forward to. So we're going to skip over thousands of years from the wise men, from the birth of Christ, to look for just a moment at the future kingdom that Christ intends to bring upon this earth. Now, in the Bible, if the Bible was a newspaper, the kingdom of Christ would be one of its hottest news stories. In fact, it would be in the top two of the news stories that you find in the Bible because this is the second most topic, talked about topic that is in the Scriptures. So much has been said about the kingdom that I only have just a very, very small amount of time to talk about or just give you a fraction of the information that's given. Now, during Christ's ministry, when he was here on earth, He gave a preview of his kingdom. In fact, his life was a preview of the kingdom that would come. He gave a glimpse of what life would be like when he is in his kingdom. Now, when you have time, uh, you might want to read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, because that is a kingdom sermon. It's about life in his kingdom, and you can read that and you can find out some things. That, That sermon is the kingdom manifesto. You should be well acquainted with it. And just previous to the start of that sermon, we read in Matthew chapter 4 how Jesus modeled his kingdom that is coming. In in the fourth chapter of Matthew, in verse 23, 
And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments and those which were possessed with devils and those which were lunatic and those that had palsy. And he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. So there you see a preview of Christ's kingdom. Here you see nations, here you see people from all over the world that are attracted to Jesus Christ because of the great things that he did while he was living. And we notice here that when Jesus preached his sermon, that he came down from the Sermon on the Mount and he began a life in demonstration of righteousness of what that kingdom would be like. And when he came down from the Mount, the very first thing that he did was to heal a leper. Now, maybe you didn't know this, but leprosy in the Bible is the most pointed example of what sin is like. Leprosy was an incurable disease, and sin is incurable except for the power of Jesus Christ. And so this is a look into the kingdom. It's one in which sin cannot rule. It's one in which people will live in good health. Sin brings disease, and when sin is not there, when sin is locked down, then disease is done away with. And so what did Jesus do? Night and day, he healed people and he demonstrated the plan for his kingdom. He healed until he was physically exhausted. Matthew 9, 35 says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Jesus raised people from the dead. He came back from the dead himself. And so he showed that his kingdom is a kingdom of life. And he showed that he can give the greatest life possible, the richest and the fullest kind of life. And that's what his kingdom is going to be like. It'll be a kingdom of health, a kingdom of prosperity, a kingdom where there is no disease. And people will live much longer because there is no sickness. In Isaiah 65, verse 20, it speaks of the kingdom in that respect. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. The millennial kingdom is a kingdom of great prosperity. Jesus made a controversial statement in, about prosperity in Matthew 12, verse 42. He said, The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Now, Jesus made a statement there that was astounding, that set the Jews back, that he would say something like this, a greater than Solomon is here. And of course, he's speaking about himself, speaking about his power and his glory. He is greater than Solomon. But all that they could see in front of them was a homeless carpenter, a man who had nothing of what the world has to offer. They couldn't see that in him. But he said, I'm greater than Solomon. And what was so outstanding about Solomon's kingdom? It was outstanding because of its prosperity, because of its wisdom. It was a kingdom of great wealth and wisdom, and it was greater in wealth than any kingdom that ever had been seen upon the earth. In Solomon's time, gold was so plentiful that silver was no more worth than stones that were found on the ground. Why would you bother with silver when there was so much gold? The people basked 
in the prosperity of the kingdom. Solomon gave people jobs. He rewarded their labor with good wages, and the people had all that they needed. Isaiah spoke of that same kind of prosperity when he spoke of the coming king. He showed that Jesus' kingdom is even going to be greater than Solomon's, just what Jesus claimed. The prosperity of that time, the reason his kingdom is greater is because the prosperity of that time is better than the prosperity that Solomon had because it wasn't prosperity for one nation. His kingdom is prosperity for all nations, for all people on the face of the earth. Isaiah 65 says, And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them, and they shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. And so you think of the areas of the world today where there is deep poverty. You think about children that are starving in Sudan and other African countries. There won't be any place like that in God's kingdom. That will not exist. The world will have plenty to eat. It'll be lush and green like the Garden of Eden. In Isaiah chapter 9, the promise of Christmas was given, and in that scripture it says that Jesus would come and the king would be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. And this one, this, this description of him is so wonderful, the Prince of Peace. He is a king of peace, and that's another great aspect of his kingdom. When sin is gone, peace will come. All the animal kingdom will even be at peace. In the original kingdom, or the original creation rather, there were no animals that were predators or prey. Adam was a strict vegetarian. But when sin came, God cursed the world and animals became food for man and for each other. And men began to fear wild animals. But what happens when Satan is gone and when Christ reigns? There's peace over the whole world. Man with man and man with animals. Isaiah chapter 11 says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. That is perfect peace, folks. In the millennium, Eric will not be able to kill Bambi's mother. He won't be able to do it. Do you see what sin does? Sin ruins peace. Now, as much as politicians like to talk about peace and they promise peace, it is never going to come, not until the Prince of Peace comes to rule on this earth. And it can't come because of sin. Sin has to be dealt with. You have to be rid of sin. That has to be put down. It must be locked down. It has to be shut out. And that's what Christ is going to do. He'll rule with a rod of iron. He'll lock that sin down. And that's what's going to bring the world peace. Now, do you know that the same politicians that promise peace are actually the greatest enemies of peace? When the Supreme Court ruled against God's righteousness this past summer and our president uh, supported that ruling... Did you know that gay marriage became another roadblock to world peace? 
And you say, well, how does that happen? It's because you can't have peace when there's sin. You can't make peace with sin. You know, it's a, it's a foolish view to look at Jesus Christ and say that he'll tolerate sin, that he makes peace with sin, because he can't. He can't coexist with sin. There can't be peace when there's sin. And so when our politicians pass any law that is against the commandments of God, they have shut down the ability to have peace. So we need to look for politicians, hopefully vote for people that, that and we can put into office and have some respect for the Lord God and the commandments that he's given because we will not see peace without it. Oh, they don't have any idea who Jesus is. He doesn't tolerate any way but his way. And so every time that a politician speaks of peace and passes a law against God's commandments, he has ruined the possibilities of peace. Now I want you to notice some other important aspects of Christ's kingdom. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he told them to pray that God's kingdom would come to the earth. He said, pray that the Father's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, why is God's will done in heaven? Well, there's no sin there. God's perfect will is done there because there is no sin. Now, when you are told, or when the disciples were told, or when we listen to the message that they were given to pray for Christ's kingdom to come, did you know that that is a prayer that all other kingdoms would end? That all other authorities would end? When you pray, as Jesus said in that prayer, for God's will to be done and for his kingdom to come, did you know that you are praying for the end of American democracy? God's kingdom is not a democracy. His kingdom is a theocracy, it is a theocratic monarchy, and I don't know how much you know about the theories of government, but God's government is an absolute monarchy. He's a king who reigns supreme. It is his will, and there is no other will. He is the final authority. Is that a problem for us? Would we want someone else? Well, no, he is the perfect king. All his decisions are perfect. Every decision that he makes is for his glory, and whatever is for the glory of the Lord is for our ultimate good. And this is why we have to uphold God's word, God's commandments, because that's for our ultimate good. Now, if you look at verse number 4 in Revelation 20, this is what he promises. Uh, he says, I saw thrones. John sees this vision. I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Christ is going to have representatives in his kingdom that will help him rule. He promised the disciples that they would help him rule. Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit upon the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now the regeneration he's speaking of is the restoration of Israel's kingdom. The apostles will rule with Christ. Their rule will be the same as Christ's rule because they will have the perfect mind of Jesus Christ. And likewise, all believers that rule with him have the perfect mind of Christ. We all have one purpose at that time. We all will be unified in the faith of Christ. And the sins that beset us now are never going to bother us again. We'll know Christ as he knows, and our knowledge will be what's best for his glory 
we will agree with him, and none of us will ever have any trouble with that absolute monarchy. Now let me give you three notations about Christ's kingdom. There are many, many more that I could give you, but this is going to take us beyond normal time, so I'll just deal with only three of these. First, I want to talk to you about the global kingdom. It is a global kingdom. It will extend over every square inch of the world. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory. So there is no nation that will not surrender to him. There are no rebellions against his authority that are permitted. Isaiah 2 verse 2 says, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and he shall and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. Well, there are many scriptures we could go to on this. Uh, Psalm 2 is about Christ's rule also. The psalmist said that God is going to laugh at the thought of rebellion. The kings of the earth, Psalm 2, verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh and the Lord shall have them in derision. The global aspect is also the political aspect. All nations, all governments come under his authority. Now, over the past several months, one of the troubling things that we've read about in the newspapers is what is the world going to do with all the refugees that are fleeing from Syria? These refugees overran most of Eastern Europe trying to make their way to the West, our missionary in Budapest, uh, Brother Kanis, uh, helped these refugees by giving them the gospel, giving them food, and so on. And we are sympathetic for people like that. We are very sympathetic uh, about people who are hurting and about those who fear for their lives and the lives of their families. And yet we understand that there is a great problem in Europe. And that is the Muslim community keeps growing. It keeps getting larger. And it's so large now that Islam is becoming a... Uh, to a pervasive level so that it's practically taken over what was once known as the Holy Empire. France and Germany especially are reaping the policy of open borders that welcomes Islam. And perhaps we would say, well, most of those refugees, they are escaping violence. They want no violence of, uh, of Islam, but make no mistake about this. The religion that they practice is the devil's religion. It is evil and it is violent. There is no mercy, there is no, no decency towards those who disagree with it. And eventually Islam always returns to what it always has been, and that is a, a religion that murders infidels. And I can promise you this, though, that there will be no Islam in God's kingdom, not in the millennial kingdom. One day, all of that's going to be done away with, and the one that they hate is going to rule over him. And guess what, though? He won't tolerate any of them, but what is Christ's kingdom going to be like? What does he promise in that kingdom? Well, he promises that he is not going to oppress people, so people that are living now in the, under Islam that are kept in a 7th century world, that are pushed down in a 7th century world, will not have to live in that kind of world in the millennium. There is no prosperity in Islam. But instead, what Christ offers is the freedom of salvation. He offers the freedom of sin. He offers happiness and peace in his kingdom, prosperity for all that are there. And yet, for all of that, the worst thing that could ever happen to a Muslim is to be ruled by a Jew. And that's what this kingdom will be. It will be a Jewish kingdom because it was promised to God's chosen people. And who is Jesus? He's the king of the Jews. 
Oh, he's also the king of the Gentiles. But isn't this foremost in Scripture? He is the king of the Jews. And when he comes, his seat of government is Jerusalem, and Christ will rule from the Temple Mount in a Jewish temple. And there won't be any mosque on the Temple Mount then. They'll be destroyed with the brightness of his coming. Psalm 2 says, Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. Verse 9, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And what does he say to them? He warns them, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. He's telling us, You better make peace with Jesus. In Israel, when Christ comes, there will be no arguments about the West Bank. There will be no fights over the Golan Heights. There will be no arguments about the Gaza Strip. The land belongs to the Jews. They are the official owners, the rightful owners of it because God gave it to them. And Israel will dwell in safety because God promised it. By what means are they safe? They're safe by the authority of the king. And they are safe because of his preservation of peace. There are no weapons. Swords are built or turned into plowshares. Weapons of war become farming instruments so that tanks that are used to shoot at Israelis pull plows for the prosperity of the kingdom. Now next we take a look at the social kingdom. What are the social aspects of this kingdom? Now the Obama administration has given us the most sweeping expansion of socialism in the history of our country. Universal health care has put us into the stratosphere of social spending. In 1964, President Lyndon Johnson put forth his social agenda that was called the Great Society. And his objective was to end poverty and racial injustice. And so there were a series of initiatives that poured money into education and into inner city problems, into welfare programs and other government-funded programs. I was only 10 years old when President Johnson uh, began that uh, agenda, and I've lived long enough to see an imperfect government, what it can do with a good idea that's gone terribly wrong. And the Great Society became the Great Handout, and it proceeded to ruin the work initiative in this country. And government became social engineers and economic equalizers. So what happened to the Great Society? Well, as I said, it ruined the work initiative. You can call me a fool, but I still believe what the Bible says. If you don't work, you don't eat. And there's something else I think the Bible teaches, that the rich should help the poor. But we also know this, the rich have to get rich before they can help the poor. And so it's wrong for us to tax the rich beyond the, uh, in an, with an unfair amount in order to equalize our society. Our government initiatives ensure that nobody's going to be rich, and if the government has its way in the way that it's going, everybody will live just above the poverty line. That's what you get with the socialized government. You ask the former Soviet Union how that worked out, and then you ask the Chinese and North Koreans how the common man fares under their system, a system that we are systematically headed into. Now, here's the thing. The only one who can fix social problems is Jesus Christ. And what he will do in his kingdom, he will share the wealth of his kingdom because it will be a great benevolent society. Work will be plentiful, and God demands work, and people will work, and they will eat to the full. 
You know, isn't it interesting that the Bible says nothing at all about laziness in the kingdom? It says nothing at all about people sitting down and taking rest and not working. In the millennial kingdom, nobody will have a bumper sticker that says, I'd rather fish than work. And that's because work is good. People say, no, work is a curse. Work is a curse that God put on Adam in the Garden of Eden. Well, you better read the Scriptures a little more closely because Adam had a job before the curse. God told him to tend the garden. That was Adam's job. Work is not bad. Work is good. God wants us to work. And the great thing about the Millennial Kingdom is that all work is going to be extremely productive. Now, the thorns and the thistles that farmers have to deal with because of the curse, that will be gone. California will be drenched with all the rain that we can use. Deserts will bloom in that time. A drive down I-5 won't see any signs that blame Boxer and Feinstein for stealing water from farmers. You know, it seems that our politicians have so little regard for human life that they think it's better to preserve fish than it is farmers and people. And so I suppose they would rather that farmers fish than they would farm. But another great thing about the social aspect of this kingdom is that, or th th it is, is it that people can work, people can live, people can prosper. It is a prosperous kingdom. But there's also another side of this, of this social aspect of the kingdom. That's the administration of justice. In God's kingdom, justice is always served. When we go to court, evidence is, is supported by eyewitness testimony, and that is a biblical principle. I mean, after all, our laws in this country are, are based upon biblical principles. And so credible evidence has to be given before someone can be convicted of a capital crime. And so you have a judge that sits and listens to witness testimony, a jury that listens to testimony, and they decide the case. But sometimes the information they receive is bad. Sometimes the wrong people go to jail. Sometimes uh, the wrong people are set free. But you contrast that with the perfectly righteous judge. We read about him also in Isaiah 11. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove with the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. You know, he keeps talking about that, smiting the earth, smiting the earth, the rod and so forth. And with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Now verse number 3 says this king is not going to judge by the sight of his eyes. He's not going to judge by the things that he hears. He doesn't have to. That's because he knows it all. He's the omnipresent, omniscient God. He's there when everything happens. He sees all that happens, so he doesn't need anybody to tell him what happens. He doesn't need anybody to tell him what's going to happen because he already knows everything that's going to happen. So he has perfect justice. He doesn't have to listen to anybody to tell him anything. He has perfect justice, and so every decision that he makes is spot on. This judge is a perfectly righteous judge because he knows all. There are no secrets in his kingdom. Here's something that you need to learn. And that is that God does not acquire this ability in the millennial kingdom. He already has it. He already knows everything. He already knows everything that you have done. And he already has a record of everything that you've done. You've done. And later on, we're going to see in a few messages later how God is going to bring that record up and call out that record to show you what you have done.
So socially, the kingdom is a great place. It's a great benevolent society with love and compassion and jobs and justice. And that's what you get with perfect government. Now lastly, we look at the spiritual kingdom. What about the spiritual aspect of it? Well, the spiritual aspect is the way that you relate to the king. We found that in Matthew 2, verse number 2. The spiritual aspect of it is worship. The wise men said, where is he that we might worship him? Let me say, there will be only one religion in the millennial kingdom. Now, before the kingdom begins, the devil will also have one religion. He will unite the world's religion under one heading. We find it in Revelation 17. It's called Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots. That is an adulterous religion. And that description of it shows that it's a full-scale departure from the worship of the true living God. That's why you see martyrs in Revelation 20, verse number 4. The, uh, Satan has empowered the Antichrist to force all people to worship him, and God's people won't do it, and so they're killed because of it. But they're going to come back, and they're going to rule with Christ in his kingdom, and there will be perfect agreement with the king. Now, there are many different denominations uh, in the world today, in our country today. And let me say this, I make no apologies for being a Baptist. I make no apologies for being an historic Baptist and preaching what our Baptist forefathers preached. But I know that there are Baptists that don't agree with me on some things. I'm sorry for them. I also know that there are saved people in other churches, and I would never claim that only Baptists are going to go to heaven. That's because salvation is not in the Baptist church. It is in Jesus Christ. But I also know that somebody has to be wrong. There has to be somebody wrong on the doctrines that we disagree on. Somebody has to be wrong about their worship because we don't all worship in the same way. There are some that baptize babies. We will not baptize babies. There are some that open up the Lord's Supper for all comers to, to partake. We won't do that. There are some that are charismatic and some that are a little less so, and we have absolutely no tolerance for what we think are, are the works of Satan and a counterfeit religion. But no matter what your denomination is, there are some key elements, some core things that you must believe in order to be saved. You have to believe that justification comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ, that it is by God's grace, that you can do nothing to save yourself. Justification is only in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. You must also believe in the full deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that, you can't be saved. You also need to believe the Bible is God's word. Now, you might not understand all of that when you first get saved, but a person who is saved comes to realize that. A real person who has, a person who has real salvation begins to realize this. The Bible is God's word. That is God's authority over me. And you can't change doctrine to fit what you think it ought to be. You have to stick with the Bible. Now, those beliefs will rule out a lot of people, a lot of churches across America and the world, but these are non-negotiables. These are imperatives that without them, you're going to be in hell and not in heaven. Now, many people say, well, let's just abandon all doctrinal distinctions. And they just say, we don't really care about what the doctrine is. We're just Christians. We're just Christians. That's all we want to be. Well, that might be good for you, but it's not good for us because that's not good or consistent with Christ's kingdom. Christianity is about doctrine. It's about distinctions in doctrine. 
And when Paul talked about unity in the faith, he never said anything about laying down the distinctions that are between us. If anything, Paul would say, build those walls higher. There has to be a distinction between my people and the rest of the world. And that's the way it's going to be in the millennial kingdom. It's going to be an uncompromising kingdom on doctrine. And if you read Paul and you read Peter and you read John, especially in reading John, you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, there's a man who is uncompromising about his doctrine. Now, in the millennial kingdom, doctrine is going to matter. But then everybody's going to be on the same page. All of the rulers that come to help Christ, they're going to be settled in their doctrine. They'll be on the same page with Jesus Christ. Their basis is the Word of God, and the Word of God is settled forever in heaven. So this is what I know. I know all of them are going to be doctrines of grace men, that their eyes will be opened, and they'll know the truth, and they'll say, you know something, Pastor Smith was right about that. Only they'll say, no, not Pastor Smith, Jesus was right about it. Paul was right about it, and John was right about it, and Peter was right about it. And this is because the knowledge of Jesus Christ will cover the world like waters cover the sea. And so the truth of the wonderful grace of God is going to be shown everywhere. And what we will do is we will honor God who sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to be born, to live and to die and to arise from the dead to be a great king in his kingdom. And when he returns in power and glory and binds Satan for a thousand years, we will rejoice and we will worship God in spirit and in truth. And so what about this kingdom globally, politically, socially, spiritually, and doctrinally? Micah wrote in Micah 4, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Let me give you just one last word about the kingdom. What I've described is not the final form. The kingdom that I've just described to you is a kingdom that's on a sin-cursed earth. Lucifer and Adam defiled it. Some of the problems have been done away with in the millennial kingdom, but not all. And that's because the people that live in this kingdom are still in their human bodies. And that means that they are still sinful. The rulers aren't sinful because those are people that have come back from heaven to rule with Christ. But the others that are there, they're still sinners. And sin has to be dealt with, not just in a way like God deals with Satan and not as he deals with evil angels and not as he deals with this conglomerate of people that we say that are lost. Oh, sin has to be dealt with individually. Sin is going to be dealt with individually. And so what God will do is he will destroy Satan and all individuals who have rejected Jesus Christ and follow Satan. They will all be destroyed. And so when you think about Christmas, think about those wise men that saw the star. They look for a king, excuse me, a king and a kingdom like the one that I've described here. No wonder they said, we've come to worship him, and that's what you must do. You must come to worship him. You must bow before him, and you must say, he is my king. And when you acknowledge that there is a Christmas to be celebrated, you acknowledge there is no one 
but Jesus Christ who is to be worshipped. There is no hope. There is no hope globally, socially, or spiritually without him. And so let's think about that. Let's come and worship the king. That's what God demands from us. Worship the king who is high and holy, lifted up and exalted, because he's also the king right now, and you should know him as your savior. Let us pray. Father, we come thanking you for the Lord Jesus Christ, thanking you, Lord, for the kingdom that will come. And we just praise your holy and precious name for Jesus Christ and his righteousness and what he will establish on this world. And because he is a perfect king, we can expect that all of these things, all the sin, all the troubles, all the difficulties that we live with today, those things are going to be done away with. And how we praise your name, Lord, for Jesus who came to die for our sins, to take all of it all away so that we can live in your kingdom. Bless our people today, Lord. May we leave this place rejoicing and lifting high the name of Jesus Christ and let us worship the King. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org